Hello and welcome to Author in Your Classroom from Plazoon. My name is Helen Mully and the author joining you in your classroom or wherever you're listening for this episode is the creative mastermind behind the brilliant Who Let the Gods Out books and a brand new series about which we'll be talking today. She is, of course, the completely marvellous and although she really, really doesn't like to mention it, best-selling novelist, Maz Evans. Welcome to the podcast, Maz. Thank you so much for having me. What a joy it is to be here. I'm a best-selling author, but I like to keep that very quiet. Just uh, the best-selling thing, the fact I'm a best-selling author has written best-selling books. I just want to keep that very, very quiet, Helen. So let's not mention it again. Yeah, I'm going to keep best-selling off the table. Thank you. you. Um, Because we best-sellers, we like to be very modest. (laughs) As is right and proper. So on that note, uh, Maz, what does it feel like to be a best-selling novelist? Oh, I don't really like to talk about it, Helen, but seeing as you've <laughs> asked the question. Um, well, I feel I'm, I'm rather cheat. Joking aside, I'm a big cheat and a fraud and a fake, like all we authors feel we are, because um, I was very lucky when Who Let the Gods Out, which was the first book I ever wrote, uh, was published way back now in, in 2017. Um, it was the Waterstones Children's Book of the Month, which you, people might know Waterstones, the big bookshops. Now, that basically means you're going to get to be a best-selling author once you get that job. So I can't really claim that so many people loved my book. I became a best-selling author. It's just I had the lovely people at Waterstones really promoting my book. So I got to be a best-selling author on my first week in the job. And the great thing now, four years later, I could still brag about it. It's great. I love it. I'm going to assume they didn't just stick their hand into a bag of random books and pull one out and yours just happened to be the one that was drawn, Matt. I think you may have to take just a smidgen of credit there. No, I think it was definitely the bag. Uh, there's there's no other rational explanation, frankly, but I'm extremely lucky to have had it. And and all librarians and teachers and, and bloggers and most importantly, the children, you know, every time a child says to another child in a playground, I really like this book. It's really funny. You might like it, too. That's that's the most amazing thing. That's what keeps my books in people's hands. And that's what keeps my stories alive. So I'm, I'm very lucky to have had huge amounts uh, of support and, and friendship from schools and children because I, I need you. So thank you very, very much. There you go. You heard it here first, listeners. This is all down to you. So Maz, you said that Who Let the Gods Out was uh, your first book that you wrote but what about stories have you always written stories were you scribbling stories oh if I wasn't scribbling stories I was making up lies which are you know a a naughty (laughs) form of telling stories so I always it's always my excuse is lying is is not necessarily right but it's very creative and uh, I've always (laughs) been a very creative person and yes I loved writing stories I mean I like I think a lot of writers I was a very big reader when I was a child and I would read and 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 you know I I always say your brain when you're little is like a big sponge. If you think of one of those big sponges, if you drop a sponge in the bath, it gets bigger and bigger and bigger, doesn't it? It fills up with water. And that's what reading does to a young brain. It fills up that brain with ideas. You don't know it's happening. Ideas and characters and stories and plots and all the rubbish stuff like punctuation and spelling that we find very boring. Um, And the great thing about that sponge is if you read, you just fill it and fill it and fill it. And then when you're old and hairy like me and you want to write a story, all you have to do is wring that sponge out because it's full of all that stuff. You don't even know it's there. And so I was a big reader. So I always wrote lots of stories. And the first book I ever wrote, I wrote my first book when I was six. 
uh, and it was called The Ladybirds in My Bathroom, spelling clearly not being a big thing of mine back then as it isn't now because Ladybirds was L-A-D-I-B-E-R-D-S. Um, and unfortunately, The Ladybirds in My Bathroom has been lost to literature uh, because I accidentally dropped it down the toilet oh. when trying to illustrate a dead ladybird. So I'm afraid that is lost to the, the canon of literature forever. Um, but from The Ladybirds in My Bathroom uh, to now, yes, I've, I've always written the stories, always loved. And so how did you get from ladybirds in your bathroom to the idea of writing about gods wandering around the modern world? Oh, you asked me, Helen, how I became a best-selling author because I'm really uncomfortable with the level of attention <laughs> that we keep giving this. I, because... I know you are. I'm sorry. I'm trying to sneak it in there. It's because really becoming a best-selling author from the Ladybirds in my bathroom, which was not a best-selling book, it turned out. <laughs> um, so I, my, all my books are, are a combination of two things, really. It's something that I know and something that I love. And I have always loved Greek mythology. I mean, really massive mega geek. The only thing I ever won that wasn't someone pulling my book out of a bag at Waterstones um, was uh, a prize when I was about nine. I won a, a school prize and it was a book on uh, Greek mythology. I have, I'm looking at it now, it's in my bookshelf. Uh, and I read these stories and I was hooked and that was me done. And I became, uh, I studied, um, I actually opted to do Latin at school so I could study Greek mythology. I did it through like, GCSE and A-level and into university. So I, I knew quite a lot about it when I came to write this book. And I think when you're writing your first book, it's really, really um, good to write about something you know quite a lot about. So I um, know quite a lot about uh, Greek mythology. So that was that. But and I love it. So it, it all comes from a place of loving it. But also I coupled it with something that has touched my own life. So Elliot, who's the hero of the Who Let the Gods Out series, um, his mum is uh, living with a condition called early onset dementia. And dementia might be something that's touched some of your listeners' families. It certainly touched mine because two of my grandparents had it quite profoundly. And I went to live with them for a little while. I was older than Elliot. He's 12. I was more like 19 to go and help them because they were really struggling. And dementia is usually something that affects older people. So grannies and great grannies and, uh, and great grandfathers, that sort of age. But very occasionally and rarely it can affect younger women. And that's the case with Elliot and his mum. And I was so very close to my grandparents and watching dementia change them. Dementia can be a very mild illness that you don't have to worry about too much, or it can be something that becomes a, a, a little more problematic in your day-to-day -day life. And watching them go through uh, the changes that they did left a very, very profound effect on me. So oddly, I ended up with these two things, a big love of Greek mythology and the experience that I'd have watching someone I love live with dementia and how that had affected me. And I squished them together into this weird trifle that became Who Let the Gods Out? And um, it was a book that literally nobody wanted to publish for many years. <laughs> I actually, I first wrote it seven years before it was published. But eventually, basically, everyone just got sick of me asking, I think. I think, for, you know, it's, it's like, your kids, you know this. It's like, saying, can I watch Netflix? Can I watch Netflix? Can I watch Netflix? If you say it enough, eventually, someone goes, yeah, go on, just do it. And that's basically how my publishing career happened. Will you publish my book? Will you publish my book? Will you publish my book? And in the end, they just gave up and let me, I think, just keep me quiet. So, um, yes, it came about in a funny way. But what I know and what I love, those, those are important things for me as a writer. And that leads us really well into your new book because there is a similar trifle squishing going on which I which I wanted to talk about in a little bit with your new book but perhaps first of all just just tell us tell us what what the premise of the new series 
So the new series is. is so finishing gods which i loved i mean i love that series I, I thinking about what to do next as an author is always very tricky because i was very lucky i don't know if i mentioned it but my first series was a bestseller so uh trying to follow <laughs> that um, I, I would prefer we didn't keep going on about it but um <laughs> what to do next so the temptations to do something very similar because obviously there are other mythologies i like and there are other um you know, other stories from old i could i could borrow the characters like i did but actually i want to do something a little different so again what do i know and what do I like? So I love spy stories. I love James Bond and I love Stormbreaker. I love all of those things. I really love a good spy story. I used to watch them with my dad when I was little and uh, I've been a huge fan of the, of the genre ever since. And a few years ago, I went through an experience that a lot of families go through in that um, me and my husband got divorced and we have three children and our divorce were very fortunate. My, my ex-husband and I are the best of friends and it was a very friendly divorce, but it's it's a sad time for a family and it's a very challenging time for a family. And I know that you know, millions of children go through this and, and know what a difficult time is when, you know, two people who you love very much might start behaving very differently towards each other and you've got to have different living situations. And I, I know how hard that is because my parents got divorced. So it's something I've seen both as a child and as an adult. So the thing I loved was uh, spies and the thing that I know a bit about is divorce. And I, again, squishy trifle time, uh, pop those two things together with a story starring Vi. And uh, Vi is short for Valentine Day, who very early on in the book, from the very first page, has sussed that her mum, Easter, Easter Day, used to be a top spy. And she kind of confronts her mum about this right off the bat. And she's right, Easter used to be a, a top mega spy. But as can happen uh, with we parents, when she became a parent, her priorities changed a little bit. And she's now a super overprotective mum who does not let Vi do anything because she's terrified of her getting hurt. And she certainly, absolutely does not want her to become a spy and put herself at risk. So, of course, what is the thing Vi now wants more than anything in the whole wide world <laughs> to become a spy? Because her mum doesn't really want it to. So there's Vi wanted to be a spy. Um, as far as Vi is aware, her father, who was also a spy, died when she was a baby, um, as everyone said, doing what he wanted to do, diffusing a nuclear missile in space. Uh, so he died, as everyone said, <laughs> as he would have wanted to. So uh, her dad, Robert, has never been on the scene and her mum is just about to remarry. To Vi's not great satisfaction, her form teacher, Mr. Sprout, George Sprout. <laughs> and George, he's all right, he's nice enough, but you know, he's her form teacher. It's gross and he's snogging her mum and Vi's not very happy about it. And George brings with him a son, Russell, Russell Sprout, uh, the school big oh, kind of geeky, roboteering, um, kind of mega kind of brilliant scientist, but a bit of an outsider at school. And this is going to be Vi's stepbrother. And, and as we start, she's just not very happy about all this at all. So the wedding day rolls around and Easter and George are about to say their vows when Vi's dad turns up and interrupts proceedings in a, in a way that I won't spoil here, but he, he reappears and does that, well, A, clearly he's not dead at all, never was. Uh, he was also never a spy and he did not die diffusing a nuclear missile in space. He was the world's second greatest supervillain. Uh, and he and Easter met, as, as Robert explains, it was love at first fight, uh, when uh, Easter took him out with a judo punch, trying to stop him from blowing up a nuclear power station. And they had a short and very tempestuous marriage of which Vi was the product. So two slightly inconvenient things kind of for Vi. One, uh, she's got one parent who's a super spy and one parent who's a super villain. 
But on a technicality, Easter and Robert never got divorced. So they are still legally married. And if Easter wants to marry George Sprout, she needs a divorce and Robert will not grant it unless he can get to know the daughter he's never got to know. So poor Vi now finds herself in the middle of the uber divorce situation when one parent is a super spy and one parent is a super villain. And they've both got, you know, airing cupboards full of weapons and, you know, they put trackers in her lunchbox. And, you know, she's got all the silly things that parents can get up to whilst they're divorcing with all the power of being a spy and a super villain behind them so poor old Vi and all the while she's trying to save the world and prove that she's a great spy. Well I don't know about anybody else but I want to hear from this book and I want to hear from this book right now so if that's all right with you Baz I'm just going to press pause for a moment while you find your place in the book and and find a, a good chunk to read to us and then we'll be right back for a slice of Vi Spy's adventurous exploits. I can't wait. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with our guest for this episode, Maz Evans. So, Maz, you are going to read to us now from your latest book, Vice Spy, Licensed to Chill. Before you start, you've given us the, the general background to the story, but perhaps you could let us know where we are in the plot so that our listeners can put themselves in the picture. Absolutely. I'd like everyone to be clear where they are in my new best-selling novel. Um, so <laughs> we are still quite uh, early on in the story here. So Robert having turned up, I explained he crashed Easter's wedding. So there's now a question, does Vi actually want to know her dad? Because obviously he has a pretty shady past. He was he was the world's second biggest supervillain. You know, he's not a big cuddly teddy bear of a man. So there's kind of an issue, Does she does she really want to get to know him and obviously her mum has pretty strong opinions on what she should be doing but for as curious as you would be wouldn't you you know you want to know your parent and who you came from and of course this explains a lot about Vi that she is half spy and half supervillain herself so perhaps some of her less glorious tendencies can be a little bit explained away by her father's bloodline. So they decide uh, to go for ice cream uh, when they first go and meet together at a cafe, Cafe for Fante. Uh, which is in a local park. And uh, as Robert explains, it has it has a particular kind of uh, client base, Cafe Fafante, that, that we understand a little bit as the piece goes on. So this is when Robert and Vi really kind of talk for the first time in Cafe Fafante. Giuseppe caters for a particular clientele, Robert said, waving to the kindly older white man with a big grey moustache, bushy eyebrows and a red striped apron behind the counter. This is the safest place in town, and the coffee is amazing. Signore Bar, Giuseppe trilled, delivering our coffee. You are my favourite customer. Nothing is too much trouble for you. It's better to keep a low profile, Robert whispered to Vi. You never know who's out there holding a grudge. And if I thought for one moment you weren't safe with me, I'd have to walk away. Uh, okay, said Vi, as Giuseppe extinguished a lit stick of dynamite and a milkshake on the next table. He looked at Vi and raised a finger to his lips. Vi looked back to Robert. If she mentioned it, he might leave. And Giuseppe seemed to have everything under control. Vi took in her dad's sleek sports car parked outside and the smart suit he was wearing. You have nice stuff, she said, for someone who donated all their money to charity. I do, said Robert cautiously. They were gifts from an elderly relative. Well, can you tell that relative that I want a phone, please? You don't have a phone? Robert asked. I thought everyone your age had a phone. 
everyone my age doesn't have my mum, Valentine sulked. She's convinced that they can be used to spy on people, so I'm not allowed. What rot, yawned Robert, as a masked assassin popped up behind the counter and started wrestling with Giuseppe. Forgive me, working late last night. After you, he nodded at the Sunday. I really shouldn't, said Vi, as Giuseppe knocked the assassin out with a bottle in a straw basket. But I bet you will, whispered her dad with a wink. Giuseppe, another espresso when you're ready. Si, signore Ford, said Giuseppe cheerfully as he extinguished a second stick of dynamite on a nearby panettone. So, said Robert, sticking his spoon in. So, said Vi, doing the same. Why did you leave me? Robert gave a startled laugh. You get straight to the point, don't you? Vi shrugged. Is there a better way? She asked. No, smiled Robert. I don't believe there is. He sighed and put down his spoon. When I met your mother, he said, I'd never experienced anything like it. It was the first time she tried to eliminate me. That's romantic, said Vi through a mouthful of ice cream. That was the way in our world, smiled Robert. Boy meets girl, girl tries to terminate boy. But the way he used to kick down the door, the way she knocked out three henchmen with a single punch, the way she took me down with a judo throw, truly, it was love at first fight. A large bomb landed at Giuseppe's feet, which he quickly diffused with a scoop of pistachio ice cream. We knew it was wrong. She, a super spy, I was a super villain. But we just couldn't help ourselves, he continued. We ran away to Las Vegas and married in secret at a drive through wedding chapel. We told no one until you were on the way, and even then only your grandmother. Indy was completely against us. She said that it would never work, that we were too different, that I was a complete idiot. Yet she might have mentioned that, Vi grinned. Well, it turned out Indy was right, Robert sighed. Your mother and I are very different people, and we have very different ambitions. She refused to join my world, and I refused to join hers. In fact, we only have one thing in common. What's that? asked Vi. We both really love you, said Robert with a warm smile. He meant it. Bum, bum, bum! Oh, has. <laughs> I love that scene so much. And I've read it so many times that it still makes me laugh with the assassins pinging about everywhere and Giuseppe <laughs> diffusing bombs with pistachio ice cream. I mean, was it as much fun to write as it absolutely is to listen to, to read? Oh, you're very kind. Well, that seems a really interesting example of, I think, something that people don't understand about writing, which is the importance of editing. Yeah. Now, I'm just currently at this moment, I'm literally today uh, just finishing up on Vice by Two, the sequel to this. And um, it's a first draft. It's like literally the words as they come out of my head on the page. Now, I regularly say I would rather run around Piccadilly Circus with my knickers on my head than anybody ever read that draft <laughs> of my work. It is what I call an Andrex draft. It is toilet paper. It is awful. And I would certainly not be sitting here as a best-selling novelist based on my first drafts. There is absolutely no way at all. Um, so what we have to do is once you've written the book, and I think a lot of people think we write the books, we send them to our editors, they check it for spelling, and it goes off to be printed. Yeah. Uh, it takes me not very long to write my books. It takes me because I do an awful lot of planning. So I can write a book in about three or four weeks. Uh, this one, Vice by Two is my land speed record. I'm going to have done it in a fortnight, uh, which is 
frankly stupid. Uh, but it takes about, let's say, a month to write a book. But it will then take between six to nine months to edit it. And that's where the really big work comes from. And that scene is a really good example of, I know I need that scene in my book because it explains a lot about Robert and Easter. It explains a lot about Vi and Robert. But when I, the first few times I wrote it, it was really boring. It was just them talking about all of this stuff, the information that you hear. And nothing was happening. And it Every time I came to it in the book, it brought the book to a bit of a halt because it was boring. And I thought, well, what can I do to make this scene a little bit more interesting? Because we need the information. The scene's got to stay, but we need to do something. So originally they've been sitting in Robert's car, and I think. And then I thought, you know what? No, I'm going to put them in this cafe where basically people keep trying to kill Robert. And this poor waiter, who obviously does this all day long, is constantly trying to stop uh, all these threats. Uh, from coming in. So he varies, he wrestles ninjas and he, uh, you know, he, he puts out bombs and he throws dynamite out the window and he does all kinds of things. And immediately that scene lifted from quite a boring piece of information to a scene that lots of people have told me that they really, really like. So that said, that wasn't writing, that was editing. That was it coming, uh, you know, from me working and working it to try and make it a bit better. So it's a good example of how I really do write books, which is I get them down. First drafts are shoveling sand editing is building a sandcastle. And that was a good building a sandcastle scene. That's really interesting that you say that, because the other thing I wanted to ask you about that scene in particular, which probably feeds in to the same point about editing, is that it is very physical. So while you're writing, how do you know where everyone is? How do you know where the assassins have popped up from and gone down to and whether Giuseppe is actually near the pistachio ice cream or, in fact, he, he needs to sort of sprint across the restaurant and do or, or does someone else do that for you? No, they don't. And I <laughs> wish they did. I would give them anything to do. This is the stuff that trips you up when you're writing a book is it's not the big ideas or the plot or the character. It's something like that. Like, where is Giuseppe and where has he just pulled an ice cream scoop from? You know, it's it's those <laughs> moments. And the big, so, so when you have the big, and you know, this is a spy book. This is a spy series. So obviously it has to end in a big dramatic kind of battle. Those scenes for me are the hardest, right? Because exactly that, you go, they climbed a ladder. Well, where did the ladder come from? I don't know. It's just a ladder, but the ladder has to come from somewhere. I don't know. Someone built the ladder. Well, when they build the ladder you know, and you find it like that I don't want to talk about the ladder I just want everyone to you know zap each other with laser guns That's not fun. well where does the laser gun come from like ah uh, so it, it is that stuff that can really really trip you up and that's the editing process that's why there are six or seven drafts of this book not one because you know I can't suddenly make a ladder appear out of thin air and yeah that is the really tricky stuff that that is the reason I eat a lot of biscuits when I am writing books <laughs> <laughs> and if something did slip through that doesn't quite hang together, so maybe the, the ladder appears impossibly out, out of nowhere, would some sharp-eyed, deep-thinking young reader of your books write to you and tell you about it, do you think? Oh, yeah, they do. Oh, my <laughs> oh, Lord. Good, I'm so glad. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, this terrifies me because you can't get anything past a child, can you? Kids are the smartest people <laughs> on the planet. There's no way you can sneak anything past them. <laughs> and I now, that the problem I now have is, um, you know, Who Let the Gods Out say it's four years old. It's just had its fourth birthday, but I wrote it long before it was published. So, I'll, you know, when the world is turning and I spend a lot of time in schools, people will suddenly ask me, well, what about that thing when Hermes did that and then he did that and I, I can't remember and they can <laughs> quote chapter and verse but yes people have written to me with things well mistakes wasn't just things they're not very happy about you know if they're not if I've done something to a character they will absolutely tell me off 
I have this with them in the Who Let the Gods Out series. And I, I don't want to give any spoilers, but there's a very popular character, Hermes, who is very um, mortally wounded at the end of the second book, Simply the Quest. Now, originally, my plan had been that Hermes would die and we wouldn't see him again. And my editor said, um, I wrote Simply the Quest before Who Let the Gods Out um, was published and, and immediately became a best-selling book. And my editor um, said, are you sure you want to kill Hermes? Because I think everyone's going to like it. I went, no, that's it. Hermes is toast. Anyway, my then about, gosh, what would have been, eight-year-old son was reading Who Let the Gods Out. And he um, read it and he overheard this conversation and he said, if you kill off Hermes, I'm leaving home today. So I'm going to pack, you know, my Fireman Sam backpack and I'm out of here. And that was it. And so I had to keep him in. So it's not only other people, my own children kind of keep me in check with what I'm allowed to do. I've got a list of requirements for Vice by two from my youngest <laughs> daughter. So trust me, I am being kept under on a very tight rein by my readers and quite rightly so, frankly. Definitely. Maz I could talk to you about this all day, but we we do have to move on and do other things at some point. There's so much more I want to ask you. But before I do, I do just want to take a moment to remind all the teachers, parents and carers listening that we do produce a special free resources pack to go with every episode of Author in Your Classroom so that children can take what they hear and they can use it to produce their own fantastic writing with a, a properly professional touch. The packs are available from plazoom.com and the details are in the episode notes. Right, Maz, if it's okay with you, I'm just going to pause the recording again while all the grown-ups make sure they've got that written down and then we'll be back to finish off our conversation. Welcome back to Author in Your Classroom with me, Helen Mully, and my marvellous guest, Maz Evans. Now, Maz, I know that all of our listeners will be familiar with that moment you're in the classroom, you're sitting at your desk, and the teacher says, OK, we're going to do some writing now. And for some people in the classroom, that will be the best news ever. But for others, it's going to inspire that heart plummeting feeling because it's it's the the scariest the worst thing ever and I just wondered if you had any advice for anyone who might not be excited about the prospect of being asked to write something well first of all those of you who would rather stick non-defrosted fish fingers up your nose uh, <laughs> than ever do a piece of writing that's how I feel a lot of the time and it's my job so I'm totally with you and I think the problem is that people forget that stories are they're creative and you're all creative you know people think people decide they're not a good story writer from a very young age but it's I, I never met a child who can't write a story actually it never takes me more than about three minutes flat because children are inherently creative you're really good at making stuff up think about the last time you got in trouble I bet you made something up then I bet you had a right story to explain why it wasn't your fault or somebody else did it <laughs> now I'm not saying that's right, but it's certainly very creative. And that's what we need to tap into when we have a story. So I think for me, so I have a system called Story Stew that I use 
to um, teach children how to story write. And the, the key thing with stories too is it's not about starting with a land or a setting or any of that or, or heavens forbid, an opening. That's one of the, the systems that is used for story writing. It says the thing you need to start to write a story is an opening. Oh, well, great. That's massively helpful. Thank you. I couldn't have figured that out on my own. I mean, useless advice. Um, I think the thing that all stories start with is a character. That's the thing. That's what we're going to be rooting for. That's who we're going to follow. That's whose story it is. Now, I know lots of children who struggle to come up with worlds and settings and concepts and plots. I, I haven't met one who can't come up with a character. So this character can be any gender you like. They can be any age you like. They can be anything you like. They don't have to be human. They can be a dragon or a monster or a or a tissue or a pencil or a carrot. I get an awful lot of carrot stories. I don't know why. <laughs> I've had more stories about Bob the carrot than anything else in my career. Um, but they can be anything you want. And they can be good and virtuous and kind. Or they can be a little bit wicked and evil and naughty and bad. And sometimes if you're stuck for something to write, those characters can be a little bit more interesting than the good fairy who went and did something very nice. Yeah, which is lovely. Nothing wrong with those stories either. But, you know, sometimes, you know, the naughty flamingo who did something a little bit, little bit wicked, that can sometimes be a more interesting story if, if you're not in the mood for writing. So start with your character and then figure out what your character wants. That's the backbone of any story. Who's your character? What do they want? Because that's what their story is going to be about. Them trying to get what they want. You have to put a problem in their way. So your character, what they want, what's the problem? They have to solve the problem and then they do or don't get what they want. That is every story ever written. So a character, what they want, a problem, a solution, and do they or don't they get what they want in the end? That's it. If you've got those five things, anybody can write a story. But start with your character and the world and the concept and, and the plot, all that will come out of that because we, you know, a character who's a naughty unicorn who steals a football is going to be a very different story from the pretty fairy who wants world peace. So as soon as you've figured out who your character is and what they want, naturally a lot of that other stuff will come around it. So you can do it. I've never met a child who can't write a story. I've met thousands who told me they can't write a story, but I've never met one who actually can't do it. So you're brilliant and you can do it, I promise you. That is such fantastic advice. So let us into a secret, Maz. In the writing process, what is the easiest and most enjoyable bit for you? And what's the trickiest and most beastly bit? Oh, well, probably I would answer that question very differently depending on which day of the week you ask me, to be honest. But um, <laughs> for me, generally, the bit I find easiest is the funny stuff because I tend to see, see the world as being faintly absurd. And even when not very nice things happen, you know, it's, it's finding the funny side of it tends to get me through it. So I, I choose to try and see the positive in this world rather than negative things generally, but also the funny things. And, you know, if you can't laugh at yourself, you are missing one of the greatest jokes there is. So, uh, you know, funny things about myself and, and my world. And so those things I enjoy, thinking of funny characters as situations. Some of the hardest stuff is some of the things we talked about earlier the details. Also for me personally, I hate describing anything. I love dialogue. I love character. I love action, but I do not care what color the wallpaper is. And you need to put those details in so people have a sense of it. <laughs> but I always, the note I always get back from my uh, editors like, yep, great. Uh, what's the house look like? I'm like I don't care. It's bricks. It's well, it's got a roof, chimney, a <laughs> couple of windows. I don't know. So I'm terrible at writing description and I do not enjoy it at all. And it's often the last thing I do. 
But I also I don't want to do too much description because I do want people to kind of build their own mental cinemas of what I'm doing. And if I tell you too much, that doesn't leave you room to see the characters how you want to see them. And that's my excuse. And I'm sticking to it. So I was going to uh, say that lets you off the hook very nicely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I can say I can make up anything, right? I'm a, I'm a storyteller, so I can make up anything for my own convenience. Okay. And you did give it away earlier on, but just to confirm, there is definitely at least one more Vice Spy book in Ooh, the pipeline, yes? I can definitely confirm there are at least two. In fact, there are two. Uh, there are going to be three <laughs> books in this series. Uh, <laughs> spoiler alert. So um, yes, I am working on Vice 2 at the moment, which will be out around the same time next year in February, and then Vice by 3 after that. So both of them are plotted out, so I know what's going to happen and what adventures Vi and Russell are going on. And um, yeah, it's, it's a joyful series to write. I'm enjoying it so, so much. And it's just, it's very fun to play in a world with, you know, gadgets and cars and, and ooh, you know, maybe some spaceships and things like that as we go through the series. So, yeah, I'm having a ball. Well, it is a glorious series. Certainly the first book is a glorious read as well. And I cannot recommend it highly enough. And believe it or not, it is just about time for us to wrap up this episode now. Thank you so much for being our guest on Author in Your Classroom, Maz. It's been an absolute blast. And uh, thank you too to all our listeners. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and perhaps been inspired to come up with a, a super spy story or possibly even a Bob the Carrot story because I, I think that character has legs of your own. We'll be back soon with another special guest. And until then, keep reading, keep writing, keep safe and happy. Goodbye. Author in Your Classroom is brought to you by Plazoom, where we are passionate about making great literacy lessons easy with inspiring, ready-to-go resources created by teachers to cover the whole of the primary curriculum. So, whether you're a teacher desperate for SATs revision that pupils will actually enjoy, a parent just as baffled by fronted adverbials as your child, or anyone looking for fun ways to keep children reading and writing during the summer holidays, we've got hundreds of brilliant ideas to explore. Take a look for yourself at plazoom.com where you can sign up to our newsletter and be the first to find out about our special offers and the new resources that are added to the site every single week. Every episode of Author in Your Classroom is packed with writing advice and inspiration from some of the world's best-loved children's writers. Plus, there are free activities and worksheets based on each author's work to spark children's imagination on plazoom.com. Just check the episode notes for links and more. You can subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. We want to reach as many pupils in as many classrooms as possible. So please do give us a rating or a review, but above all, tell your colleagues about us and help spread the word. We know that a love of reading opens doors, not just to success at school and beyond, but to a lifetime of excitement, adventure and discovery. Let us help you make it happen with Author in Your Classroom and Plazoom.